All right, Acts 11, 1 through 18. Listen, uh, proportion and repetition. They can tell us some things in the Bible. Proportion-wise, there are 66 verses that cover the conversion of Cornelius, a Roman Gentile. There's less than half that amount about the conversion of Saul. Uh, This conversion is repeated three times in the book of Acts. I don't want to read too much into it, but I think that proportion and repetition tell us that this is a watershed event when a Roman Gentile came to grips with the gospel and was baptized in the Spirit. It was indeed a supernatural event. In fact, Peter said in Acts 10.47 that these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just as we have, speaking of himself on Pentecost in Acts 2. In Acts 11.15, Peter said, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning, again, referring to Pentecost. The episode of Cornelius coming to faith, the Holy Spirit baptizing them into one body was in fact what we could call a Gentile Pentecost. Now it was supernatural because God orchestrated Peter to have this vision of a, of a sheet with a bunch of animals in the sheet and telling Peter that he could eat of those animals who were uh, non-kosher animals. That was something certainly new for a Jew. It was supernatural because God orchestrated the meeting of these people together. In fact, even an angel spoke to them in meeting with Cornelius' family and friends. And it was supernatural because the Holy Spirit descended upon them. And the event then is elevated in the book of Acts by opening up the gospel to everyone, not just Jews. A person did not have to have a religious background, particularly a Jewish one, to have a relationship with God. They didn't have to be of a, of a certain color or of a, of a certain ethnicity or of a certain political persuasion to enjoy full benefits of fellowshipping in the body of Christ. And the same should be today. People don't have to be of a particular political persuasion or color or religious background to enjoy full benefits of fellowship in the body of Christ. We could say it this way. The gospel should dictate our relationships. The gospel dictates our relationships. Let's stand and read our passage. Acts 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. 
Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And they heard these things, when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went to un, up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So before Peter could make it back to Jerusalem, word had already reached the apostles and other believers about the Gentile conversion. And apparently... Peter stayed in Caesarea for a few days, and as he did that, some headed to Jerusalem ahead of him and got word to the apostles and these other believers, Jewish believers of the circumcision party, they're called. It says that the Gentile believers received the word of God and that the Jewish believers recognized that, that they responded positively to the gospel. So Peter gets back to Jerusalem, and he's facing criticism that he's just being a little too chummy with the Gentiles by eating with them, and particularly eating non-kosher food. This was prohibited in the Old Testament. Now, the source of the criticism, it tells us, is from the circumcision party. I think we need to understand that these guys are believers. They're a part of the church. They're not to be confused with Pharisees who usually opposed the church. This party was a conservative movement within the church protecting what they saw as the purity of this Jewish Christian faith. So they expected Gentile converts to go through the corridor of Judaism first. And that would include circumcision. Now, one could say in our day, these would be like the legalists. These would be people who didn't fully walk in their freedom in Christ. It's safe to say that sectarian suspicions against Gentiles, this was brewing for centuries with the Jews. So in this sense, we could say it was institutionalized. It was, it was hard to recognize if you were in it, hard to recognize it as a problem, just like Prejudice is hard to recognize today when we're in it because it's so institutionalized. 
But notice this faction did not criticize Peter for not understanding the gospel or for his preaching. They get on his case because he was eating with the Gentiles. He was not honoring what they said was the Old Testament law. And by the way, even though they're under the new covenant now, and the Old Testament law is no longer binding, they didn't quite get that. To say that they lost focus would, I think, be an understatement. The circumcision party failed to understand the relational implications of the gospel. They were forced to rethink their traditions, their culture, their personal preferences in light of the gospel. That's a good thing for us to think about as evangelicals in America today Our traditions, our culture, the cultural things we assume, our personal preferences, are any of those superseding the gospel, or is the gospel driving the train? You see, when these things collide and it becomes too uncomfortable to choose the gospel, there's always going to be a price to pay for Jewish Christians to eat with Gentiles to widen the circle of their fellowship that opened themselves up to censure from other Jews. There was acceptance of Gentiles as long as they kept their distance. Or as long as, if they were in the body, they cleaned up their act first with a good dose of Judaism. I think it's, it's, it's easy to kind of be hard on the circumcision party and think, yeah, you know, those guys, they, you know, what were they thinking? And then we got to put ourselves in these shoes and remember how much we have gotten it wrong, attitudes that we have also maybe assumed about other people or other groups, and then we're not so quick (laughs) to judge them. Plus, remember this. If you were to fast forward about six years from this time, Peter, who's obviously the, the ringleader of all this change, He was caught up in Gentile prejudice that we read about in Galatians 2. He was fellowshipping with Gentiles. Some Jews came along, and he leaves the Gentiles in the dust. And he's taken to task by the Apostle Paul saying, hey, man, what are you doing? I mean, the the, the gospel gives us fellowship with everybody. These, These guys believe the gospel. Don't leave them in the dust. Why? Well, because it was that prejudice again was was coming out. In Peter, and he was criticized by Paul about it. I mean, deeply grained animus and, and, and prejudice, these things die hard. But here, Acts 10 and 11, Peter had it right. And he was criticized by a faction within the church for doing the right thing. Ever experienced that? Did the right thing, what God called you to do, criticized. Now, here's the thing. The circumcision party generally were not evil men. This is what I want us to understand here. Now, these aren't like bad guys. I mean, the the indignation that Peter received was partly due to them coming to a conclusion, I think, way too quickly. They got just a little information. They jumped to conclusions without having the whole story, and then they spoke this out loud. Big mistake. The first thing we ought to do when we get just a little bit of the story is to keep our yap shut. Gather information, 
before we reach a conclusion. Because once we let it out, once we say what our opinion is and what our stance is, how easy is it to back off of that? Pride and arrogance keep that from happening. The best thing to do is to just be quiet, get all of the information before you make a judgment. If we speak too quickly and out loud, pride creeps in. We become ingrained. And no matter how many facts come against our position, we're still going to hold our position. That's typical. Proverbs tells us, he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. You want to know the cause of strife? There you have it. Pride. Arrogance. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I like that. He's just going through step by step. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Now, we, we learn a, a couple things. One, one thing about Peter and something about this, this party faction, all right? Notice that Peter, okay, he's, he's confronted about this, he's criticized. He does not get upset. He does not get angry. He does, he does not lash out or get defensive. He simply stated with clarity and in order what happened to him with the Gentiles, Probably a good lesson for us, facts are always our best argument. The Peter of old would have been tempted to fight or flight. Thankfully, he didn't have a sword with him to where he'd probably cut off an ear of the guy who criticized like he did in the garden. But apparently he's in a different, you know, he's in a a different state here than he was in the garden when Jesus was arrested. Or remember when when he was confronted that he was a follower of Jesus after Jesus was arrested and he was in that court. And three different people confronted him. He denied it that he was a follower of Christ. He ends up running out. Peter brought understanding to the situation. And he knew that he was also a victim and perpetrator of small thinking. But God confronted him with this and changed his relationship with the Gentiles. Peter simply told the whole story in simplicity and clarity. And his his hope was that you know, this, this party faction, the circumcision party, would also see that God was behind these events. And this wasn't something that he just invented. And here's something we see from the circumcision party. Again, I think we have to give credit where credit is due. At least in this instance, with this situation, they went to the source. They didn't get defensive. They told, told Peter face-to-face what their problem was with him, They didn't walk away in a huff when he responded. They didn't refuse to listen. By the way, haven't you noticed, as I think it becomes apparent in our culture, there is a growing inability by grown men and women to listen to another side. Once you reach a conclusion, if other facts are given or another story, now, you've already made up your mind. 
Now, this could not have been a comfortable conversation for people to have with one of the head apostles. But the point is, the conversation took place. And it's simply unacceptable, I think, especially for leaders in the body of Christ to have some position to criticize others for maybe not agreeing with them, and then to refuse to seek resolution, to refuse to have a conversation with the parties involved. That's immaturity. And again, we put ourselves in this pickle by publicly stating our position too early. It makes it harder for us to back away and and admit our mistake instead of giving it careful thought. So the reason I think this situation was resolved mainly is because the two parties listened. And verse 18 says, when they heard these things, speaking of the circumcision uh, faction, they felt silent and they glorified God. And so, at least in this instance, they didn't let their pride get in the way and they could see that God was actually moving in this situation and unity prevailed. So again, we got to give these guys credit. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were uh, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you'll be saved, you and all your household. So three men were sent to Peter, meaning God sent them. The Spirit told Peter to go with them. An angel stood in the house and spoke to them. And clearly, Peter was accentuating the fact that God had orchestrated these events. This meeting of the Gentiles, this fellowship with the Gentiles, that was God's idea. The message that Peter was bringing would deliver salvation to Cornelius and his household. And Peter was not going to stand in the way of that. Where there were distinctions of race, of ethnicity, class, or gender, these kind of prejudices, he was not going to let that stand in the way of the advancement of the gospel. And when we do, and we allow these things to supersede the gospel, problems will occur. Notice something in verse 12. These six brothers also accompanied me. Now we know from Acts 10.45 that these six brothers were Jewish, circumcised believers. What a master stroke of genius, either from God or Peter or both. They too would have been shackled, these guys, with a natural inclination to be prejudicial against Gentile inclusion. And perhaps Peter brought these six intentionally, knowing that he might receive some criticism. Perhaps God just made sure that they went along. Either way, what better defense for what Peter is telling them than from members of their own party? It's as if Peter is saying, not only do I have witnesses to these events, but they ate, as Gentile believers, they ate with the Gentiles too. So you're going to have to condemn these people as well. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, just as he said, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized with the Holy Spirit, boo, defenses go up. 
evangelical church today, you talk about this topic and you're off to the races. And we just start saying our positions and we don't listen. And we just stay ingrained and we're never learning. So let's approach this and just ask God to teach us, right? And and let me just tell you right now, I don't have this all down. I have things to learn about how the Holy Spirit moves. I don't claim that I have perfect knowledge of this. I have a position. I'll tell you what it is. But you know what? The fact is I want to have great fellowship and do with people who don't agree with me. And so I'm not claiming that I you know, have perfect understanding in this. But the comparison to this event Peter makes in, with Cornelius is with another huge event, and that was at Pentecost in Acts 2. When God paved the way for a a new people group to believe the gospel and receive the Spirit, they were baptized with the Spirit. In the case of Pentecost at Caesarea, they spoke in tongues. Peter hearkens back to the promise made in Acts 1, 4, and 5 that John the Baptist would baptize with water, but there would come a time when people would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are, I think, two different ways to look at this. Some say that it should be assumed that tongues is the pattern to follow Holy Spirit baptism. For many people, this is an experience after salvation. And they point to these of two events at Pentecost and Caesarea. Now, this view has at least a couple issues. One is that there are 10 years that take place between Acts 2 and Acts 10 and 11. 10 years. Wouldn't Peter have had a better argument to point out all these other converts over those 10 years who have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoken in tongues instead of just pointing out two events? I mean, if this was normative, then point to all the normative examples. Secondly, there is not one injunction or command to seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit after these events. So that is problematic for something that is supposed to be commonplace for every Christian. The other way to see this passage is that the reason that Peter hearkens back at Pentecost is because that is a direct parallel to what took place in Caesarea and Cornelius. In other words, these were special events. Were there unique circumstances that surrounded these two events? Well, we know that there were new groups of people who came to the gospel, and so they were were bringing these people together uh, into the body of Christ at these events, and that way... The baptism of the Spirit was a unifying event. So how queer is it that baptism of the Spirit is often wielded in a way that brings disunity in the body? When initially the baptism of the Spirit brought unity to the body of Christ. Peter had to go all the way back to Pentecost to find an example of what happened in the home of Cornelius. This suggests that the Pentecost-type baptism of the Spirit accompanied by speaking in tongues 
was not an everyday occurrence in the early church. He had to go back 10 years. We saw similar things happen in Acts 8, however, with the Samaritans. But there, there was a laying on of hands from the apostles. It didn't take place in a, in a sovereign move of God as it did here without the laying on of hands. Cornelius and his household received the Spirit when they trusted Christ and they spoke in tongues. Now, the problem with this view, though, to say that it's a unique experience is to throw tongues out as something that never happens today, to be what they call a cessationist. I wouldn't hold that view. I think God can have people speak in tongues in ways that perhaps we don't see or understand, and it's not a gift that we can just throw out there. And I've seen the arguments of you know, how people reach these cessationist views. I think you've got to do a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics to arrive at that. Um, it would seem that if you just let the Scripture breathe on its own, speak on its own, it's a gift that God can still utilize. Again, I don't claim to have perfect understanding, and I certainly want to continue to learn how the Holy Spirit moves in the lives of Christians, and I certainly want Him to move in my life as freely as possible. There is something, though, about this that I think deserves mention, and that is the culture of some churches, regardless of where you're at on this position, okay, how they, they bandy the Holy Spirit about in a way that it mirrors the very problem that Peter was dealing with. In other words, we pigeonhole other Christians by reminding them they are not in the right group because of what they believe about tongues. Either they do or don't speak in tongues or they believe in filling, don't believe in filling, believe in baptism of the Spirit, don't believe in baptism of the Spirit, whatever it is. They perpetuate the very problem that is addressed in Acts. In other words, it's an us and them. It's reminding people you're on the outside because you don't agree with us. Again, how odd that some in the church today wield the Holy Spirit in a way that, that makes others feel inferior or not a part of the group. When Acts demonstrates the unifying influence of baptism of the Spirit. And I would point out this too. But that's not necessarily true of certain theological stances. But I just think it can happen in certain church cultures regardless of the theology. I think it's just about people because people want to feel just, you know, a little superior and remind people that they're not in our group. It happens within a cross-section of theological perspectives. I mean, some church cultures will say, these guys don't follow these rules, so they're missing out. Speaking of, you know, baptism of the Spirit or tongues. And the message is, whether intentional or not, the gospel's not enough. We can't have complete and total unity on the gospel because you got to have this in addition. You've got to have the right political party. You've got to have the right position on baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, you've got to have the right, you know, stance on drinking or schooling your kids or a host of other things that Christians wig themselves out about. Again, we're talking about a culture that is created, an environment that's created within churches. The fact is, I enjoy rich fellowship with other pastors who, by the way, I just had a conversation about this and learn some things, as he, as he shared with me, uh, about his view on baptism of the Spirit. We are great friends. 
He doesn't agree with me. And you know what? It doesn't make any difference. I don't care. You don't care what my position is. We love each other. We have great fellowship. There are wonderful men and women of God who don't agree with me, and that's cool. So let's take off the smug, arrogant attitude and act like, you know, we've got it all right, and these people got it wrong. Now, having said that, though, I've got, I've got to say this, all right? I don't mean to, I don't mean to be um, judgmental about this, but I also don't want to further the divide, and I hope it brings some light and some wisdom to the topic. So, without naming names, let's just put it this way. If, if group A believes that you have to have one experience as fruit of, and you know, whether it's baptism, filling, whatever they call it, all right? And group B believes that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is demonstrated in all aspects of life and in our relationships, okay? One group says, group A, it's just this one thing, and one group says it's in the expanse of life. Which group is limiting the Holy Spirit? It's group A, right? I fail to see how group A allows more freedom of the Spirit. It would seem to me the more expansive group where you see the fruit of the Spirit in all of life. And by the way, I think this is more consistent with true Christian discipleship. Now, again, I'm not saying there's no place for the tongues. Don't walk out of here and say, no, Kevin doesn't believe in tongues. That's not what I said. I'm saying there is a place. God can use it. I'm just saying it's not normative, that, nor is it commanded that we seek that as a sign of the Spirit in our life. That seems to me and my lame brain to be clear. Others disagree. God bless them. I love them. Whatever view we have, let's not allow that view to be encased with pride and arrogance. I've said all I want to say about that. Verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? God had made no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So how could Peter? Right? If Cornelius' household had, has received this gift without being circumcised, then Gentiles too must be acceptable to God on the same condition. To refuse to incorporate Gentiles into the church fellowship would be to thwart God's purposes. I mean, if you could thwart that, I don't think you really can thwart God. And who am I? To, to go against that. And that's what Peter's saying. You can't stand in the way. I'm not going to allow my tradition or prejudice or, or prior view, whatever it is, to stand in the way of the advancement of the gospel. Now, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Isn't that a great response? I mean, that is a wonderful response to this discussion that they had. It's a Boy, we see how God was moving. Thank you for sharing that story. We acknowledge that God was moving in the Gentiles. Way to go, God. Unfortunately, that's not the end of the story, right? Because this legalistic faction would rear its head again numerous times in the early church. But here, they heard the evidence, and they offered no further objection. They praised God for his work among the Gentiles whether it was Peter or this party faction, there were days that they got it and days that they didn't. 
There were days in which they walked in unity, and there were days in which they walked in their pride. Maybe it says something about us. None of us are lily white in this, having never done things that would breed, you know, disunity in the church. We all have, have made quick judgments. We all have said things that we regret. We all have, have prejudged without all the facts. We all have prejudice or traditions or ways that we have, we have wielded our, you know, lifestyle decisions and, and we have felt just a little superior. We've all been guilty of this in one way or another, and we see that example with Peter and this legalistic fac- faction, even though they got it right here. In other cases, they didn't. So whether it's a, a secondary doctrinal issue, a, a pet program, politics, a lifestyle issue, we're not to hold any of these at the expense of the gospel. When we do, we lose focus of our mission. The good news is, from verse 1... To chapter, or in chapter 11, to verse 18, there was a change. That faction went from holding on to their tradition to changing and seeing that, yes, God can move in the Gentiles. So there's a choice that we can make with our attitudes. That's the good news. There's a choice that we can make. We can change a prejudice. Can we not? I was listening to a podcast the other day. I mean, this was like fingernails on a chalkboard. It was a, you ever seen one of those Dean Martin roasts? They had one, you can look it up, of Sammy Davis Jr. Some of you who are young may not know, Sammy Davis Jr. was a black entertainer. And let me tell you, it was one of the hardest hours to watch because it was filled with racist jokes. And they got away with it. They got away with it. And Sammy's sitting there laughing and... I guess he wanted to be included, you know, with the guys. It was horrible, the things that were said. I'm sure nobody called those guys racist at the time, but we look back on it now, and it's like, holy mackerel, how did they get away with that? Not just a PC thing here, all right? We're talking about respect and value to human beings. There are things we have to change. There are things in which we have to be more expansive in our love and just be honest and humble to take a look at ourselves, right? So we can make a choice. And our, our mission has to drive us, not any of these other issues. Our mission here at CCC, equipping and empowering people in our God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. Well, how does that apply? Well, you know what that means? That means we don't let the budget dictate what we do. No, our mission dictates. The budget doesn't drive us. Our mission drives the budget. Our mission is to drive our staffing decisions and our programs when we allow petty differences to divide, when we allow personal agendas to drive us, when we allow politics to pick our friends, we reveal that Christ's mission is not driving us. There's something healthy about having relationships with people who are not in our tribe. It demonstrates the power of the gospel. If all of your friends look alike, think alike, that's a problem. And we can make a choice to be more inclusive in every which way. And there are people here in our fellowship who believe differently, who take different positions maybe on social issues. And you might disagree vehemently, but we agree on the gospel. Most division in the church can be traced to 
losing focus of our mission. I've done it. I mean, in 30 years of being a pastor, there are times I wanted to give up. But you know what? And, and I realize now, that wasn't the fault of others in what they did or didn't do, what they said or didn't say. That was me losing focus of the mission. That's what that was. I mean, when a leader feels like he or she isn't getting their due, they miss the mission. When someone didn't get the church to go in the, in the direction they wanted or they felt their pet program wasn't pushed enough, they forget their mission. So we have to humble ourselves before God and allow the Spirit of God to move us from small thinking to a much more expansive kingdom mission. Let me tell you something, my friends. It influences every relationship. It should influence the way you do business. Are you prejudging people in how you do business? Are you cutting people out? Are you a horse's patoot in how you approach people? Write that down. Horses patoot. The gospel is to influence our relationships. Everything. Our families. Gospel-centered. Grace-centered. Truth-centric. We show value and respect. Aren't you glad we got a God like that? Aren't you glad we've got a God who shows value to every human being, being made in the image of God? Aren't you glad we've got a God who says the gospel's good for everybody? So when the gospel's in our lives, you know what? That has to bleed out in our relationships. Let's pray.